for the first week in October with Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, MovieSharkDeBlore.com. You can find me online. You can find me in print. You can find me right here. You can find us on iTunes. Look, and I'm somewhere. Um, Greg is not with me today. He is actually off at uh, doing interviews on the incredible film Truth, uh, the Mary Mapes and Dan Rather story. Uh, he'll be back next week, I think, uh, with some great interview content, I am sure, that, so that we can share that with you. And uh, we'll talk more about the movie Truth, which, again, as comes as no surprise, Kate Blanchett delivers a powerhouse performance that definitely it will be swirl- her name will be swirling with Oscar chatter uh, as the weeks and months go by. But today, uh, thanks to the miracles known as uh, publicist Annie Jeeves and Melanie Marquez. Great show today. We've got Alan Lubke is back. You may recall Alan was here. He was live a few weeks ago when we had Diamond Dallas Page. And Alan was cut a little short because of DDP. Of course, he didn't mind, but because he was such a gracious gentleman about it, I invited him back uh, at his earliest opportunity. So he'll be joining us today to talk more about his documentary, Glenna, on Glenna Avila, uh, female MMA champ, uh, and if you haven't seen it yet, look for it. Glenna is out there on demand on various platforms. It may be on Netflix. I'm not sure, but we will ask Alan about that. Then at 11:30, we have writer, director, producer Sherry Sussman, who it delivers. It is without a doubt the most hilarious, satiric short I have seen in I don't know how long called One Night in Hollywood. And for, we're going to hear all about that from Sherry and also how this is a springboard for financing to do a feature. Uh, so definitely want to chat with her in depth about that. And of course, for all you General Hospital fans out there uh, who are missing our beloved Duke Lavery in the show, here's your chance with One Night in Hollywood to see Ian Buchanan himself in a delicious delicious performance but got a lot of audio for you today from some of my exclusive interviews uh that i've been doing uh, the past couple months one of which uh luke hemsworth the the third of the uh well-known hemsworth brothers and i have to say luke is an absolute delight he is so grounded he is a family man and he's bounced back and forth from acting to general work uh, to various you know business ventures but he is a joy and I pulled his audio today from our exclusive interview that we did for Kill Me Three Times the uh, Kriv Stenders film that was out earlier this year along the seven psychopaths uh, vein hilarious very funny very dark but because Luke is also in the film The Anomaly, which is out on DVD tomorrow. Originally, uh, director, producer, and actor Noel Clark was going to be with us today from London, but due to circumstances beyond our control, he is not. Um, But because Luke has a lot of interesting things to say about acting, um, and and everything that he says and does, besides that incredible Aussie accent that we all fall in love with, he has a really great practical upbeat attitude about everything as if if acting ended tomorrow it wouldn't be the end of the world but so 
the first, I had to ask him, because of his background and because of the many ventures that he's done out of the acting sector, what is the appeal of acting? What draws him to it? And here's what he had to say. I mean, I actually, I actually probably been doing it for the longest. Um, I loved, I loved theater in school. I, I did, in you know, high school, I did all the <laughs> stupid drama productions and, uh, um, it was a strange balance because we're all heavily involved with sport and, and drama as well. Um, and they, they, they do complement each other in a lot of ways in terms of you suffer a lot of defeat in sport and, and also in, um, you know, in, in acting, in the acting world, and you learn to deal with both of them very quickly to a certain degree. Um, and it, it just came from a sense of, of play. We all kind of, we love to play and we don't take it too seriously or each other too seriously. Um, and we like to have fun. I, I just never saw myself sitting in a nine-to-five job. Um, mm-hmm. I, just, I just, I don't know, I think I'd go crazy. That's the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, absolutely. I never, yeah. I, I mean, I, and, you know, look, I did it. I tried... You try, you try various things as you grow up, but I was always a, always a worker as well. I, I love doing things with my hand. My grandfather was a, <clears throat> uh, a carpenter, and I think that's where that, that came from. I spent so, mm-hmm. so much time building things with him in his garage. And, uh, I went to university. I studied acting. Uh, and, you know, I did TV shows in Australia. And, uh, and then I just kind of, I don't know, it didn't, it didn't it never reached that a right level for me so I, I went and did other things and I, I actually started a, a timber flooring business which which we ran pretty successfully for a few years um, and then something happened and the, you know the, the love came back and the bug came back and I started to get things rolling again and um, started to do some good stuff and here we are and here we are indeed it, it seems that uh, the good Luke Hemsworth is popping up everywhere this year uh, in the anomaly in Kill Me Three Times. He has a couple other projects. And upcoming is Westworld, uh, the adaptation, the TV series that HBO is doing. And Luke has a prominent presence in there. But with his background in jostling be- TV, film, theater, you know, have to ask him. Do you have a preference at this point in time? Have you developed a preference for TV, film, stage, or is it all just kind of in there? Look, it's, it's all in there. I, I, I don't think... There's not a real big difference between... Especially film and television anymore. Mm-hmm. I think television's so good nowadays that you know, you're basically making a little film And... Um, the theatre I always loved and it's entirely it's a kind of entirely different beast altogether um, and but again it comes down to the work I think I don't think any actor worth their salt sort of differentiates anymore it's about making sure that you're doing something that you love because of the story or the character um, and if the material's right then it's, mm-hmm. it's always a good way to go I think that's it Rather than saying, I just I, I'm not sure if it happens anymore that actors say I don't want to do, you know, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. So. 
<laughs> sure, there's some. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I, mean, I want to do it all. I'm about to start some TV, so it's great. And his reference to TV is, of course, as I mentioned, the Westworld, HBO Westworld project, which, stay tuned, it will be coming out, my guess is probably after the first of the year or somewhere thereabouts. But in the meantime, tomorrow you can catch Luke in The Anomaly, the Noel Clark-directed sci-fi feature. Uh, There's a little bit of 12 Monkeys in there, Source Code, uh, some of the Jason Bourne stuff, all these really cool elements come together in a dystopian future that very smartly uh, a direct, a writer Simon Lewis and Noel Clark have not set too far in the future so that the technology that we see being utilized is well within the realm of possibility today, let alone, you know, and probably very real in the next five to ten years. So it gives you some pause for thought. Uh, Clark is also in the film as an ex-soldier who is being held captive by a group called The Anomaly. And it deals with mind control and a jumping back and forth through time. And every time a jump is made, there's nine minutes and 47 seconds before you go back. Um, so it, it's a cat and mouse thriller amongst yourself, actually. Hopefully we'll have uh, Noel Clark here in the future to talk about it. But in the meantime, it's on uh, DVD, Blu-ray, on demand tomorrow. And check out Luke Hemsworth, who plays Agent Elkin in that film. And right now... Alan Lubke is here. Hello, Alan. Hey, how's it going? It's going. I'm so glad to have you back. Thank you for coming back after DDP. So, unceremonious. Yeah, me too. It was fun last time. He cut into your time. You know, how rude. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think winning a couple WWE championships allows him to do that. So, I'm okay. (laughs) So, how have you been since we last talked? I've been really good. You know, we're getting this encore performance of summer in Portland right now, so it's still sunny and 80 degrees right now. Very nice. Very beautiful. So what's happening with Glenna? What is happening with this wonderful documentary and this great study of a woman and a female MMA champ? And I know she did her last bout, I think, was in June or something uh, that she won. Yeah, everyone always wants to know, you know, what Glenn is still doing. And, you know, she's still fighting. She turned 40 in April, mm-hmm. and she just had her eighth pro fight, and she's doing really well. I mean, she's she's really, I saw her last fight, she's really never been better than she is right now. Um, and, you know, she's really still, you know, trying to get into the UFC because they have a 115-pound women's division now that's getting really popular and I watched that division, and Glenna's better than a lot of the fighters in it. And for some reason, they just haven't signed her. And Glenna could walk through that division and probably get to a title shot in not too long. But for some reason, they're just not picking her up. But, you know, and that's something that your documentary, you really captured on camera. This isn't just somebody going from fight to fight to fight or training. This is about a woman who is juggling life. And when you see everything in the doc, when you see everything that Glenna goes through in terms of, 
you know, a breakup, you know, she's got her kids, she's dealing mm-hmm. with the bankers and foreclosures and moving and making the jump. There's yeah. no doubt in my mind that she is fully capable of may, of entering this next level. Glenna, of, of unlike anyone that I, I've ever met, is pretty much capable of doing anything. She She really does take the concept of, you know, you can accomplish anything if you put your mind to it. And mm-hmm. she really lives that on a daily basis. You know, when she was a kid, I mean, she grew up in the backwoods of Wisconsin. Her parents were practically non-existent. She and her brother sort of raised themselves. She was, as a teenager, she was homeless for a while. She had her first child when she was a teenager, had nowhere to live, got taken in by her dance teacher. I mean, Glenna has always found a way to conquer fairly impossible situations. And trying to get into the UFC as a 40-year-old woman seems practically impossible. But if really, if anyone can do it, it it's Glenna. And I wouldn't be surprised to see her in the UFC in the next in the next year and doing really well and people saying, Hey, where'd this lady come from? She must've just start fighting. And we're like, no, she's actually been kind of doing this her whole life where she takes on really, really crazy challenges and finds a way. <laughs> now, if she is to make this jump, would you do a follow-up documentary? You know, we, I've toyed around with that idea so many times because, you know, Glenna is so much like Rocky and, you know, there's like, I think like six or seven Rockies, and then they're now even doing Apollo Creed's Kid. Yes, there's five. Ro- yes, we have five Rockies and, plus Rocky Balboa, and now we have Creed. So, it, yeah. So, you know, there's been a lot of things that have happened in her life that would be really great for telling the story. But, um, you know, we're actually right now working on adapting the documentary into a fictionalized version. Oh. For Hollywood and for the big screen. Okay, talk to me about this because sometimes things like that work, sometimes they don't. Are you doing the script for this? Or are you bringing somebody else in? We're bringing in uh, another screenwriter, and we're bringing in uh, trying to. We're looking at female directors right now. Uh, initially, we had sort of discussed maybe if I would be interested in doing it, but after four years on the movie. <laughs> I just felt like it needed a really fresh, it needed some new ideas, someone that could look at it from the outside and see some new angles, because the adaptation needs to be, it doesn't need to be a a copy of the documentary. Mm -hmm. It needs to be something that it feels like it's its own story. And I didn't feel like I could really bring that, but I'm helping produce it. And, uh, you know, we have a really amazing actress that's set to play Glenna, which I can't say who it is yet, but she's a, big big name and well um, it's really it really it's really exciting i'm sure you probably know i'm gonna see who i would suggest for this who would you want for it Rhonda, Rhonda rousey right well Rhonda is already playing herself in her own movie i know coming up i know so maybe we'll yeah. get her as the first female captain america too um yeah Rhonda's doing a lot of stuff she's really uh she's really kind of like a, a superhero of the entertainment industry right now she does a lot of stuff people always ask Glenna do you want to fight Ronda Rousey and she's like Ronda would kill me Ronda weighs like 40 pounds more than I do <laughs> they don't they would never fight Ronda fights at 135 pounds Glenna fights at 115 and Ronda, so they would ne- they would never ever face off and one look at Ronda and she is she that woman is muscle that 30 she's big she's she's big for 135 uh, I mean, she's just really really strong 
Uh, and she fights different than really anyone, any other women or even men fight. She comes right at you, and she looks to make the night as short as possible, <laughs> whereas most people kind of take their time, try to score some points, let it go to the judges. She's trying to... She's trying to get done with work as quickly as she can. I know. It's like 28 seconds, 29 seconds, and you're done. Bye. Yeah, it's it's amazing what she's doing. You know, the, the difference between Rhonda and the competition right now is so vast that yeah, I don't know if it – I mean, it's partially because Rhonda is just so, so good, but it's also that the women's division, it's still developing. A lot of the women who are fighting professionally haven't been doing it that long and so they're really still developing the skills to where they can face off competitively against Ronda mm -hmm. and that's when I think you know women's MMA might get even more popular where instead of just one star there's about five stars who could all legitimately beat each other and everyone is always kind of jockeying for position right now there there is no chance Ronda's going to lose no one is going to beat her I mean it's, it's almost an impossibility that someone can beat her right now I just uh, it's really just a matter of seeing how fast she can beat the other opponent that's I what Rhonda's matches have turned into. I mean, I'm surprised anybody wants to get into the cage with her. Well, you know, you do when you find out you're going to main event a pay-per-view and oh. you're going to get a pay-per-view check. I mean, Rhonda sells so many pay-per-views. Her opponent gets a cut of those pay-per-views. And so, you know, the, the fans might not know who you are, but they know who Rhonda is. So she's actually kind of making you rich and making you famous mm -hmm. just by piggybacking off of being her opponent. So now, with Glenn, will Glenna be involved in the narrative adaptation of the documentary? We would love for Glenna to be involved in it. One way that I'm really excited about possibly having her involved is that, um, you know, the actress is going to get into amazing shape, just completely transform her body for the movie. And instead of her hiring a trainer to the stars, I would really like Glenna and her coach Ron to go down to you know LA and work with this actress for six months and train her the way Glenna trains mm -hmm. and learn to fight the way Glenna learned to fight so that in the movie she looks like Glenna she fights like Glenna mm -hmm. she doesn't just she didn't get trained by some so-called expert boxing coach or something mm -hmm. but she, and she gets to work with Glenna all the time and learn her personality and see who this woman really is mm -hmm. I think that would be super cool and Glenna's really excited about that idea too and I think you know Something like that, you could turn into a really interesting training montage within the film itself. Of, of uh, what? Uh, you could turn that into a really, if you were filming it while the actress is going through six months of training, you could actually film that and turn it into a nice montage piece within the narrative feature. Yeah, we, we thought about we thought about that thing too, and you know. Without a doubt, the movie has to have a training montage. Mm -hmm. Got to have at least one. And so, you know, the documentary even has a training montage, mm -hmm. which I did not realize when I made that, that all fighting movies have a training montage. Well, you kind of... South Park even did a skit about it. They made a whole training montages. And it was, for me, it was just, a, there was a piece of the story missing. We needed to push the story forward a little bit, and it seemed like this montage was the way to do it. And then much later, people were like, oh, you did a training montage. But I had no idea it's sort of a standard scene in boxing and fighting <laughs> movies. But, you know, it's very interesting because it gets it brings the audience up to speed. So that it, it does. It, the, the montage in the movie pushes a story forward about six weeks mm -hmm. in about 90 seconds. And yeah. you go, oh, Glenn is training really hard for this title fight. Her son is training really hard for his dance competition. 
they're both working hard and they're both helping each other and they're getting closer while doing it. That's essentially what the montage is communicating with really exciting music and kind of these action shots. Mm-hmm. And then in a narrative feature, you can really expound on that. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're really excited about the, ever since I started the documentary, it always seemed like it had the potential to have, to be adapted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then pretty much right when the movie got, got out into the world after slam dance, it, the discussion was pretty much going right away. We had actually a, an Oscar winning actress consider the role initially, and she was really interested. And there's always been a lot of interest for an adaptation because this type of movie has never really been done. There's mm-hmm. only million dollar baby. Yeah. And that's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. The women just get left behind. Yeah, they do. Which really sucks because I like watching stories about women. Like I find them more interesting than men. Well, something that I find found really interesting with the documentary was that in many respects, you were taking a risk in filmmaking, the same way Glenna was taking a risk in MMA. Yeah, when I started the movie, I, I was not a filmmaker. I had been making videos for several years and doing it professionally, but very small time. And the plan was never to make a, a movie. It was never. There was never a discussion. I'm gonna. Oh, I'm gonna make a feature film. Uh, it was never even a discussion. Oh, I want to be a filmmaker. I'd never thought about it before. And as I kept shooting, it just sort of seemed like the story needed to be longer. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of ended up being 84 minutes. It, it wasn't a goal of mine to make a movie that was that long. It just ended up being, that's how long it needed to be. And when it came out, I, I was convinced no one was ever going to watch the movie. I, I didn't think it had turned out that good. And just because, you know, when you make something, you just don't think that's very good. And then right when it came out, it started doing so well. It got really positive reviews. Showtime was interested in it right away. We had another cable channel that wanted it. We had you know this Oscar-winning actress who wanted to you know, star in an adaptation of it. And suddenly I went from not really thinking anything of this movie to just maybe six weeks later being in L.A. and being in meetings at like CAA and WME with these agents who were like, we love your movie. What do you want to do for your career? And I was like, I'm really just here because you guys are serving free coffee. <laughs> you know, like I'm just like this broke filmmaker from Portland. I don't, I didn't really, I never thought about it before what I wanted to do in the entertainment industry. Uh, and so it just happened. And then all of a sudden I found myself being like, well, I guess I'm a filmmaker. Now, do you want to be a filmmaker? I want to tell stories. And I think stories come in all sorts of different vehicles really my goal with filmmaking like i love filmmaking but it i don't make films because i love filmmaking i make films because i love communicating with people and i like to tell stories that are dramatic and have a lot of conflict but ultimately give people a sense of optimism and make them look at their own life with a, a renewed sense of what they can do and Film is a great way to do that. But if I found another vehicle to do that, I would do that as well. Mm-hmm. It's never been about filmmaking. It's just been about helping people find a way to be happy. Do you consider yourself uh, to be more of a storyteller? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I am one of these people who am constantly meeting interesting people because they're just, I don't know, I just tend to rope them into these conversations 
and I start telling a story and they start telling a story and suddenly we're off on this journey of something that we we had did not even anticipate 10 minutes ago and my friends are always saying you know your life is like this little movie you meet all these weird people and have these strange interactions and I think I you know I I've probably set myself up for those because I like having a story to tell. I like looking at my own life and seeing stories. I like looking at the people in my life and seeing interesting stories. So I really like being surrounded by stories all the time. And I don't really even watch movies very much. I more so look for stories in real life. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where the best stories come out of the truth that we find around us. Yeah, you know, um, you know, real life can be, you know, stranger than fiction a lot of times. And I love when that happens. I love when I find myself in a situation or talking with someone and I can't believe what I'm hearing. I live for those moments. <laughs> Are there any stories in particular that you want to tell that, that you've come across that you really want to cultivate? And I mean, really the, the story that I want to tell right now is, uh, really kind of like my own story. I've been writing a very autobiographical series for the last couple years, and it's very much about the last two years of my life. I was, uh, I had been married for four years, and that ended very suddenly. And my life went the complete opposite direction after that that I thought it was going to go in. And I, I, I began, I found myself living this life that I did not recognize that I had never thought I would be living. And I was so surprised how well it fit me. And I just sort of embraced it and just kind of kept going. I said, I'm just going to keep doing this so long as it feels right. And I started writing about it and all these amazing interactions I had with people. And it started to reveal itself as like my own story. Um, and so I'm kind of planning on turning that into, uh, you know, not a film, but like a series. Um, mm -hmm. It's very autobiographical. It's very much about love and about modern relationships and about kind of the endless mystery of romantic connection and this concept of that you just never really know who it is that you're you're in a relationship with. You can never know someone completely. You you never even know yourself completely. And so, you know, love is just a constant exploration and learning about yourself and about other people. Uh, and I love that concept. I mean, I think about love and relationships all the time. And I've always wanted to make a project that was about modern love in a way that no one else is talking about it. And I think I finally found that. And would you want to direct that yourself? Yeah. Oh, I, I would have to direct it myself. I mean, the way it's written, no one else could even understand it but me. It's not. I'm not a traditional writer or filmmaker. I didn't learn how to make I didn't go to film school no one taught me how to do this. I just do it in a way that makes sense to me. So the stories are all from my life. And they're really interesting stories. I'm kind of amazed that I was even involved in some of these because I grew up in such kind of like a plain youth, very just sort of mundane, suburban life. And so now in my early 30s, to find myself in some of my own amazing adventures has been Sort of shocking to me that, like, oh, wow, I, I never thought my life would look like this, but I'm so glad that it does. But yeah, I would I write it, and I would direct it, absolutely. It's not for anyone else. Now, as you're putting this, this dream project together, and when you write, and I don't know if you did this when you were formulating and putting the doc, Glenna's documentary together, but do you storyboard out, do you have visual ideas of how you want 
that thought, that scene, that progression to play out? Generally, no. I think a lot about the themes and the emotions that I want to communicate, and then I try to keep everything else very open-ended because I like being surprised. Like, when I'm behind a camera, I'm on a documentary, I don't... I like to know why I'm there and what I'm trying to capture, but I love being surprised and just letting the story evolve once it's out of my hands. So I'm not one of these filmmakers that knows exactly what I want it to look and sound like, and I'm always you know, telling people, change this, change this. I love not knowing exactly what it's going to look like by the time that it's done. Because it, it's like being on your own little journey. If, if you know the destination... It's like it's not as fun. I want to be surprised when I get there. It's just a more, it's just a more fun way to work for me. You know, I don't like doing rehearsals. I just you know I just talk with you know actors and we come to an understanding about the characters in the scene. Then we say, all right, let's just do it now, and we'll just see what happens, and we'll just keep you know riffing on it until it feels right. Mm-hmm. What is as you, since you are progressing and moving through the industry and staying in it. What is the greatest gift that gives to you per, on a personal level? That, okay, that's an interesting question because, like I said, I've, I've only really been in the industry for like the last year and a half, and I didn't even realize that I was getting into it when I did. It just kind of hit me one day, oh, I guess I'm in the entertainment industry, and I'm a professional filmmaker with this you know, film under my belt that, that people really like. Uh, one thing that's, that's, that's been really good for kind of getting into the industry is that I work with a really small team of people in Portland, and I, that's intentional because I trust them and we know each other and we do good work together. It's basically the crew that worked on Glenna. Mm-hmm. And Glenna doing as well as it has, it has pushed all of our careers up to where people will actually listen to us now. Because we always felt like we had good ideas, but no one would listen because we had no you know, big accolade behind us. Mm-hmm. And now they're like, oh, you guys are the team behind Glenna. And, you know, people just seem to really care about that. And it allows us to get into a room and people will take us seriously. Because we have all these stories that we really want to share with people. We just mm-hmm. have to get some other people on board and to believe in us. And it's made it so much easier for people to say, oh, your idea is a little crazy, but you did Glenna, so I guess you know what you're doing. <laughs> well, Alan, I think you know what you're doing. And I'm so glad Thanks. you. Jo- I'm so glad that you came back and joined me again today. Yeah, me too. And I hope you will stay in touch and keep me advised and apprised of both projects <laughs> you have going. And yeah, you're welcome. Sounds like a good deal. And definitely, as you get further along in the process with them, please come back again. Great. Yeah. Well, I am off to the river for the rest of the day. Well, you go have a lovely time and enjoy that sunshine. That's the plan. <laughs> Thanks so much, Alan. Bye bye. And that was Alan Lubke, the director of documentary Glenna on Glenna Avila. We're going to take a short break. And as soon as we come back, we're going to have Sherry Sussman, which something tells me it's going to be a lot of laughs.
Time to tune in and log on with Behind the Lens. Join noted film critic Debbie Lynn Elias and a lineup of talented co-hosts and informed guests each week as she goes behind the lens and below the line. We'll take in-depth looks at films and filmmaking with the movers and shakers and up-and-comers of the industry, along with movie reviews, interviews, awards, festival coverage, specialty segments like Tech Talk and Classic Corner. Tune in to Behind the Lens every Monday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Adrenaline Radio. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And welcome back to the second half of Behind the Lens on this first Monday in October. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, MovieSharkDeblore.com. And by the way, anybody listen to the commercials, the last one for Super Organizer James Lott, great guy, great show. I strongly recommend that you tune in on Fridays at 10 o'clock or catch him on the flip side on some of the replays throughout the week. And speaking of replays, you can also catch Behind the Lens on AdrenalineRadio.com. During the week, we play repeatedly at least two, three times every single day. Plus, all of my shows are on iTunes. You can go there, hear all of them. You can go to my website, MovieSharkDeplore.com, and watch the very lovely videos that Jordan shoots, who is missing somewhere. I don't know where he went. But right now, we have the fabulous, multi-hyphenate, talented Sherry Sussman, writer, director, producer, who had put me in absolute hysterics about an hour ago. Are you there, Sherry? Hello. Hi, Sherry. Hi, Debbie. Thanks for having me. Oh, my God, Sherry. I am so thrilled. Thank you so much for pinch hitting here today. Um, I had a chance after I got to the studio to see your short One Night in Hollywood. I laughed myself silly. It is satire, sarcasm, beautifully done at its finest. And we get to look at Ian Buchanan to top it off. I'm so sorry. I can't hear you. Uh-oh. Sorry, De- sorry uh- Debbie. I can't hear you. I'm sorry. Uh-oh. There we well, go. Now you can hear it? Okay. I can. I'm sorry about that. Oh, that's no. That's live, right? <laughs> we're live. That, you know, live is live. What can I say? Things happen. <laughs> but, no, this is just, I mean, I watched the short this morning. It is One Night in Hollywood. It is satiric beauty. It is so funny. It is delicious. And we get to see Ian Buchanan. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, Ian is wonderful. We were really lucky and fortunate to have him. He was actually friends with our executive producer, Francesca von Hopsburg, and she she um, just graciously called in a favor with Ian and he actually is attached to our feature, which we're using the short, you know, to use as a teaser for a feature film, a satire about Hollywood, just a fun kind of a French side of the player. So, yeah, Ian was fantastic. He was wonderful to work with. And really Ian, lucky. And you have him playing a character that all of his General Hospital fans are not used to seeing. Everybody's used <laughs> to seeing him as the as the nice love of Anna Devane's life, the wonderful Duke Lavery, former mobster, but always a gentleman. And now we get to see this devilish darkness that you bring out. 
And you have that amongst all of your characters, but he really just, he bites into that and doesn't let go. No, he was fantastic, and I think he had fun with that. We tried to create a bit of like a, oh, dare I name names, a combination of Norman Desmond, Robert Evans, and a little bit of Christopher Walken for him, and he just took off and uh, was so much fun with it. Well, where did the whole idea for this come from? I mean, cause we basic, basically, I was working with an actor, Marcus Ryman, who's my producing partner on this and the lead actor, and he was transitioning um, into American films as a German theater actor, and he wanted um, to collaborate on a piece that I would write for him, and I just really thought it was kind of fun to sort of poke fun of ourselves here in Hollywood, because he had come in <laughs> fresh, and I, I've been in town for a while, and I saw his perspective on sort of how Hollywood works within a year of hanging around with him. And I thought, you know, just why not write a bit of a satire of his point of view of how everything is and a little bit of how we all see Hollywood when we first come out. I was a kid from Ohio and then sort of 20 years later, um, how you can get caught up in it and in a fun way, though, you know, because we all love Hollywood. And that's just it. It's very fun. The satire is biting, but it's also very fun. I mean, I was sitting here with my sound engineer, and we watched it here in the studio together, and we were both just laughing hysterically because it is so spot on and so deliciously done. Oh, thank you so much. And because it's it's a satire and it's poking fun of ourselves, but we all love making movies. It's just, um, I think it's the idea of, like, how far you will go to get a film made. And, you know, in the short, they basically... Um, go as far as you, you can go, um, having to kill somebody to get the money for your movie. But it um, it, it just is meant to be fun because we, we are all, all really cynical here. You know, it's, a, it's kind of a, just a fun idea of ourselves. It's very loving. It's very... That, it is, and, and the feature along with the short is it's a bit of a love letter to Hollywood. Um mm-hmm. Definitely a, a movie, old movie buff and a cinephile, and I think uh, it, it was just trying to get us back to the idea of like we're we're all kind of out here because we love just making movies, but then you get caught up with everything else in the business, and I guess like in any business, you know, you get caught up with the business and sort of forget why you were doing it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Well, something that really adds to, in addition to your great writing and the performances. Your visual tone in this short is stunning. It's spot on, but then your cinematography, beautiful, beautiful night shots, great, you know, lens flares with the use of color and blurring the neon lights on the horizon. But also you can throw in some dutching of the camera to give us a different little POV when you're in in the house at the end with the contract negotiations. How did you go about de- designing your visuals for the short, and will that carry through into the feature? Yes, well, thank you first um, off for the great compliments. And my DP, Jeffrey Norvet, was an new camera operator for years, did phone booths and punch drunk love. I've worked with him for a long time. And one of my mentors, Earl Letts, um, who executive produced this, was former studio president of Paramount. So I'm really fortunate to get access to high production value, Technicolor did our color correction, 
And um, I just want to say, like, for an indie film, there's so many great people in Hollywood that'll come in and do favors because mm. they still love to love to work on a piece they love. And um, Jeff and I just designed a sort of cinema verte look, um, as if hopefully you get the feeling you're right there with them, and uh, just to make it a little over the top. And then uh, Chris Wagley at Technicolor did my color correction, and we just opted for those really, you know, bright colors um, to make it a little bit over the top and, and the handheld, just to give it a feel of, of that being right there with these guys this one particular night. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by, with your color saturation and the eye-popping color, it adds that little bit of heightened sense, that surrealism to it. So it takes it out of being the mundane and lets everybody, it follows through on that satiric tone that the, that the, your dialogue has. Oh, thank you very much. That, that was the intent, is just to bring it a little bit over the top of reality, which is, you know, to me, great satire. Mm-hmm. It's just real enough, but just skewed to the left a tiny bit <laughs> to where it's not as far as caricatures of ourselves or broad comedy. So it definitely is a hard tone, and it's nothing I've ever done before. So I was a little worried. So um, the actors really nailed it, uh, Rick Peters, Kyle Kaminsky, and Marcus Raymond, and, of course, Ian. And they, they really made it um, exactly what it was, you know, nailing the tone of the performances, I think. Well, and considering you haven't done this, for those that don't know, I mean, your prior works, you know, you did Second Opinion, a documentary on prostate cancer. You produced the documentary Life in a Basket on homeless people and what they have in those shopping carts. We see them pushing all over town with what led you what what's what is it that spurred you to go out of this documentary theme and into this type of genre? Or this type well, of and differential. Actually, I, I've done a film, MacArthur Park, the uh, good friend Billy Worth directed that Sundance bought about. Yeah, you co-wrote it was that a one. Feature yeah. uh, fictionally, and I really don't do documentaries. I was asked to do those other two, and um, I really did this because I have done such serious, heavy <laughs> kind mm-hmm. of message films, and I thought it would be just something fun. It, it's just really a genre that I love. And um, I always had wanted to try it. You know, I love the state in Maine and, of course, you know, Altman, the player and mm-hmm. films like that. So uh, I I just wanted to kind of give it a shot. And so uh, uh, the feature actually is, is a bit of like uh, more of like a risky business than the player, <laughs> that kind of tone. <laughs> so now you're are you in, working on the script for the feature? Is the script done? And are you doing any kind of uh, funding campaigns to get the money, short of killing people, to, you know, get the money to do the feature? <laughs> yes. Actually, we worked backwards. The feature was finished. And uh, like I said, the feature actually is a different plot than the short. But I wanted to do the tone, the characters, and the actors attached as a piece to try to raise money for the for the feature, which we're trying to do now. And we have some great actors, um, old Hollywood, so it's just the great, you know, ode to Hollywood. We have Olivia Hussey is interested in the film and her daughter, India Isley. Olivia, obviously, was uh, Juliet from Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. Her daughter, India Isley, Ian Buchanan. We have Marriott Hartley, Billy Worth. Um, a lot of actors that are just fantastic that you go, oh, I know that person. And um so that's where we're at now. The feature was actually done first. And then 
kind of a film within a film within a film. Mm -hmm. We were running around trying to raise money for the feature when it got to be like, let's just shoot a short because he wanted to just keep working. And uh, the short was done to serve as a teaser for the feature to raise money, but yet stands alone as a short on Mm -hmm. its own. And that's why we decided to go all out to where... As if these guys in the feature two years later got so sick of trying to raise the money, they're like, you know, even if we have to kill somebody, it's not a big deal at this point. <laughs> so now, is the feature funded yet? No, it isn't. <laughs> we're, and we have the budget. We're we're doing it because we are lucky. We've got, like I said, Earl Letts um, is the executive producer, so we have tons of favors and goodwill in this film. So we're really just doing it for a low budget, half a million dollars, and... And um, and being that it is about Hollywood, the joke about Hollywood films is you can't make films about Hollywood in Hollywood. So we we were well aware, and and we try to make it. it the feature is actually, uh, like I said, it's more of a risky business. They decide to take over a house and pretend that they own it to raise money to impress investors, which which we never understood why uh, you have to pretend to have money to get money, but it seems to work. <laughs> So what what did what lengths did you go to to pretend you had money to get money? Dare I ask? I haven't yet. That's why I don't have money for the feature. <laughs> I, uh, I actually um, the funny story is, is I I've sort of had um, I've raised money for other people's films. In fact, MacArthur Park was was simply a great great package. We had Cinder Williams and Balthazar Getty and. Um, Billy Worth um, just poured his heart into that film. It's a true story of a guy who had lived in the park, a beautiful film. But I actually got the money just by telling a friend who told a friend, and they wrote a check two weeks later. So so I have no idea how people get money for movies in Hollywood. That, I think that's the point of all this. <laughs> Will you be doing any kind of Indiegogo or Kickstarter to get more funding for the feature? You know what? We, we've been back and forth on that. We're hoping that uh, we have a really great package, we have great people involved, and we're hoping that the short kind of spurs some interest of somebody who just wants to write a check. Mm-hmm. And um, if not, we do we do always consider Indiegogo and Kickstarter, of course. They're great, great avenues to raise money. Do you have a preference? I always like to ask this of directors when, or, and filmmakers when they're contemplating or in the midst of. Do you have a preference between Indiegogo or Kickstarter? Because I know Indiegogo, if you don't meet your goal, you still get to keep your money. Kicks- well, that would be my preference because I I, I haven't um, ever done either one of those, but friends have. And I got to tell you, that would be my only decision to go to Indie- with Indiegogo because if, whatever money you get, you can still use. Mm-hmm. So. I, I Because Kickstarter, that always disturbs me that if you don't meet your goal for whatever reason... You don't get any money. That disturbs me, too, because I went through that and begged and borrowed and stole from everybody I know, and then you have to tell them never mind. So, yeah, that, that's always been uh, one of the reasons I've never done it, you know. But it definitely is a great, great place because a lot of people have raised money for some great films and projects that they otherwise would never have gotten the money for. But so I think it's really great. What I find interesting, though, is a lot of female filmmakers I know Jane Clark being one who's working on her sequel to Crazy Bitches, Crazier Bitches, is once again going with Indiegogo. She had great success before. She's going that route again. Other film, other female filmmakers. It seems to be the guys are really hell-bent on Kickstarter. But a lot of the women are looking at it more pragmatically of, 
hey, let's take what we can get and at least get moving. Well, that makes sense. I think women are a little more pragmatic, but I just, uh, I, I think it just makes sense to me. But I think there's also, I think when you do one of those, you just assume you're going to get the money that you ask for. So, um, but, but I think it is a, a bit of a risk if you don't get the money. Mm-hmm. So how can people see One Night in Hollywood? Well, we'll be at the Hollywood Shorts Film Festival October 18th. At, it's at the Attic on Hollywood and Ivar, and that's um, you can go to hollywoodshorts.com. It's at 6 p.m. October 18th. And then if you, if you happen to be in India, we're going to be at the Dharamsala Indian Film Festival, Film Festival November 5th through 8th. And, and then uh, we actually just got a deal with Shorts HD we're mm-hmm. going to air in May, and that'll be on the Shorts HD channel, which is um, DirecTV, Amazon Prime. They have a number of stations. Mm-hmm. So that's where we are so far. I'm sorry. People should not have to go to India or wait until May to see this short because it's that funny. <laughs> it's that good. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. You, sh- you should do like a pay-per-view for Shorts. <laughs> well, in May, hopefully. I mean, that's that's what it, it will be throughout. You know, all the direct TVs, and but we hope to get into more festivals. We've um, entered, and we're just waiting to hear back. So hopefully, we'll be in a lot more in LA, and we can definitely buzz that up with you and let you know. Oh, absolutely! Because I definitely want to stay in the loop on this one. Because I just I am in love with with this teaser already. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. What is it? Because you have, you, you know, you've been at the rodeo for a while. You have done a variety of different uh, different things in the business. What is, what is it that drives you? What keeps you going? What is the gift that it gives to you? You know what? It's, it's really simple at this point is I still like doing it. I mean, I love writing and I love making films. And it's kind of right now that's about the only thing that keeps me going. It's like when... You've been doing it for so long. If if um, you don't have, like, that huge success, I'm not the kind of person that, you know, I can name a film like, you know, I wrote Cry Freedom or, you know, Gandhi. But uh, if, if you keep working and you keep liking the work that you're doing, I mean, at the end of the day, that you know, you've got to just make a living and get by if you can. And if you hit a really big, big film, that's great. But in the meantime... I think, and that's kind of what our future is about, is 80% of Hollywood are people that are just grinding every day, making films, writing scripts, and and I really, it's so corny, but if you don't really like doing the work, I, I just, I don't see any reason to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Do you have a dream project yet that you want, that you hope to one day do? Well, yeah, I have a film that's actually about a Holocaust survivor called Hiding in Plain Sight, and it's uh, she survived the war as a teenager because she was Jewish in Poland, but mostly because she had blonde hair and blue eyes, which saved her life many times with the Nazis. So it's a true story, and it's one that I'm very, very passionate about. Wow. Sherry, I can't thank you enough for joining me today on Behind the Lens. This has been an absolute treat. And trust me, after this morning, watching One Night in in Hollywood just cheered me up immensely and put a smile on my face.
Thank you so much, and we really appreciate it. And thanks to Melanie Marquez and Gotham Chandler, who definitely helped set this up. Oh, and my. We really appreciate your support, Debbie. That's really nice to hear. And Melanie's a rock star. She knows that. She huge. Is a, she is huge a rock star. But so everybody in L.A., October 18th, 6 p.m., Hollywood Shorts at the Attic. They can see One Night in Hollywood. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you, Sherry. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. And that was that was writer, director, producer Sherry Sussman talking about One Night in Hollywood. We're going to take another short break, and we'll be back and hear from Ramin Barani on 99 Homes. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is the number one newspaper in Culver City, covering local news, politics, and community events, with sports by Mitch Chortkov and movie reviews by Debbie Lynn Elias, Culver City Observer is the place to go to be in the know. When you think Culver City and the heart of Screenland, think Culver City Observer. When you think movies and movie reviews, think Culver City Observer. Culver City Observer, a division of Arizona Newspaper Group, is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And welcome back to Behind the Lens. We've got a few minutes left. Uh, 99 Homes is now out nationally, uh, and I'm on VOD also. Uh, written and directed by Ramin Barani, stars Andrew Garfield and Michael Shannon. We're going to have one clip from Ramin in a minute. But first, I want to share with you, I just now got the confirmation. Next Monday, on Behind the Lens, 1130, Jake the Snake Roberts. And I see Brian, Brian's face is just lighting up with extreme joy in the sound, in the sound booth. So everybody tune in next month, next Monday, because we got Jake the Snake himself. But now let's talk about 99 Homes. We mentioned it in the past. Uh, it's now out. Ramin Barani is known for tackling some great social issues. He did it without any price. Film star does Zac Efron, Dennis Quaid. 99 Homes deals with the foreclosure crisis in the United States following the 2008 stock market and financial debacle. I say depression, the economists want to say recession. But the film focuses on southern Florida, on the Orlando area, and people and the scamming and the two-fisted double-dealing that was going on within the banking industry that was kicking people out of their homes, foreclosing on them. The visuals are extremely powerful, and you've heard, we've heard from Orrin Moverman the past few weeks talk about Bobby Bukowski as a cinematographer and the specialty work that he did to develop a very defining look for Time Out of Mind. A completely different look is what he and Ramin, is what Bobby Bukowski and Ramin work out for 99 Homes. So I want you to hear a little bit about how Ramin and Bobby came up with the design and the visual look. What you guys did, what I found really interesting, um, and I brought it up to Bobby, is the visuals here, your visual tonal bandwidth, you keep it light, it, everything, there are windows, yes. everything is bright yes. and white, yes. you know, and it has almost a double entendre metaphoric meaning with everything is so blinding white around Rick yes. that you're, bl you're blinded to yes. 
the shystery shenanigans. Yeah. But then you have this slight warmth, but again, with the open windows and the, and the sunlit and the natural lighting, with the Nashes being in a motel room or in their home. And it's just so striking to yeah. the darker thematic elements yeah. that, are under, that are underlie. We knew that it would, be, it would have those kind of the darker themes, but I wanted the film, and Bobby was instrumental in that also, of just the film should be bright and beautiful looking, which kind of Florida has that look. And, you know, Bobby and I talked about how can the scenes in, in the Nash home be warm and feel intimate, hand, more handheld, mm-hmm. more comfortable, more familial. And how can it be when he goes to the Carver properties, we would get on a, away from handheld, go to a steady cam, and be a little bit more slick, very wide. Mm-hmm. The actors are, you know, kind of farther away in a huge, giant mansion that's kind of not... Very has no soul in a very way, impersonal yeah. Yeah. yeah as Michael says I got this home I'm going to flip it next year you know and so we, we I remember we sat down and just went through all the scenes and we, we were like what, what's our intuition say here handheld um, steady cam or studio mode for shooting and we made our list and I think about 80-90% it pretty much was how we ended up shooting it mm-hmm. there were a couple of times where we thought we were going to shoot steady cam we switched to handheld or we thought we would do handheld and we switched mm-hmm. to steady cam, but so kind of those choices were based on what the scenes were about. And we'll hear more from Ramin next week on Behind the Lens. And when you look at the look at our video later this week, you'll notice all sorts of new Pixar merchandise uh, out here for a little film called The Good Dinosaur. That's coming out on November twenty fifth, and we will start talking about that. I was up at Pixar for a few days. A lot of exclusive interviews, a lot of great information and content that I'll be bringing to you between now and November 25th. But for now, Behind the Lens, next week, Jake the Snake Roberts.